Good morning and welcome to Rising, real blockbuster of a show today, Robbie. You're going to laugh, you're going to cry. It's going to be a roller coaster. Wow. Uh, I'm not feeling very emotional <laughs> this morning, but we'll find out, I guess. Max Alvarez and, and Denise Long will be here for panel. They will discuss Deutsche Bank's forecast of a recession. Plus, journalist Ankush Kardori explains why the FBI is spending millions on tracking Americans via social media after the January 6th aftermath. But right now, let's talk about former President Obama's return to the White House. Yesterday, Obama joined President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris on Pennsylvania Avenue to promote the Affordable Care Act, Obama's signature legislation during his time in office. Democrats are betting the former president can give Biden a boost in the polls as Biden's approval ratings continue to sink. Obama joined the current president in signing an executive order directing federal agencies to find new ways to improve Medicare and Affordable and Affordable Care Act coverage while lowering costs. It was the former president's first time back in the White House in five years. And he praised Biden for the American Rescue Plan, adding that it improved the ACA. Here's Biden declaring he's still Obama's Veep. Thank you very much. Please. My name is Joe Biden. I'm Barack Obama's vice president. Former press secretary for the Sanders campaign and host of the Bad Faith podcast, Brianna Joy Gray, joins us now to discuss Obama's return to the spotlight. Brianna, welcome. Thank you, Ryan. And so, interestingly, you know, Biden and Obama are both right that the American Rescue Plan significantly improved on the Affordable Care Act with a bunch of generous subsidies. You know, they, they produce something like generous health care for people. That, of course, is going to expire right around the time of the election. Um, so not, did, what on earth are these people thinking? You're flabbergasted. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ryan, Robbie, let's, I let's elevate thinking, this thing we're about to take away from you. I've been thinking it's pretty clear. Look, Obama is popular. Biden isn't. Let's get these two guys behind the podium together and see what magic can spark. You know, that seems to be as far as this thinking has gone. But you know, lest we forget, I, 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 there are ways that they could improve our healthcare system by executive order. I, I applaud them for kind of trying to think of new ways to help the American people. But there are some old ways that exist under Obama's own legislation. David Dayan wrote early in the pandemic, early in the pandemic, about the ways in which using Section 1881 of the Social Security Act, they can expand under emergency authority uh, uh, Medicare to all Americans. They did this in Libby, Montana, after the town was hit by um, widespread uh, asbestos uh, poisoning. And they take away all the limitations for people who live there to just enroll in uh, Medicare, as Nixon did something similar with uh, kidney illness in the 1970s, and on and on and on. Look, I feel like it's my job. I know I come on here and sometimes people think I'm talking about larks and fantasies, but there have been all of these moments in our own American history where the government has decided in the context of an emergency, like the global pandemic we continue to be in, to use its authority to give health care to everyone for free. In fact, both Kamala Harris and Joe Biden said during the campaign trail that they thought it was the ethical thing to do to make sure that no America would have to pay out of pocket, that, that health care should be free with respect to COVID. Now, I think that it's deeply irresponsible and unethical to understand that that's the case for COVID and not for any other ailment. I think it's deeply irresponsible and unethical to allow Americans um, to experience uh, bankruptcy, 50% of bankruptcies happening because of uh 
uh, medical issues, medical costs. But hey, I'll take what I can get. And it's just frustrating that we're doing this kind of pop and, and circumstance behind the podium instead of grabbing the, the bull by the horns. Hmm. Well, another important story we broke yesterday that we wanted to discuss with you, the Biden administration will enact another extension on federal student loans through the end of August, according to multiple reports. Some GOP senators blasted the move. Senator Tom Cotton called it an insult to Americans who pay their debts, while progressive Congressman Ro Khanna called on the administration to cancel them altogether. So I know you've been talking about this a lot, Brianna. Uh, you, you, I think you want a cancellation altogether, but you have to be a little happy to get the, the additional uh, delay. Well, my understanding is that the real reason that the student loan pause keeps getting extended is because the services are in disarray. So at least two major federal loan servicers have quit the program. And there's a huge concern that once they start re-implementing or, or, or recalling these payments, that all that paperwork has been lost, the addresses have been changed, that people are going to go unbilled, and they don't actually know how to start the payments back up again. So while this might be uh, framed as a benevolent gift um, from our government, at the end of the day, we are getting a gift, but it's basically because they don't know how to restart the payments. And that's going to continue for some time now. Now, the question is, how do you get full cancellation or some uh, permanent pause such that we can have some kind of reliance interest and plan our lives? I think it's really interesting that if we were talking about um, money in, money out in some more corporate business context, I don't think that anyone would settle for the level of uncertainty that student borrowers are up against. Again, remember, these are not just kids. We have the largest population, the, the quickest growing population of people who are paying back student debts are senior citizens, social security checks being garnished left, right and center to pay student loan debts. And people are trying to make decisions about whether to buy homes, uh, move, have kids on their current bills, not really knowing when this is going to kick in. And yes, I absolutely do think we need full cancellation. I attended a student debt protest uh, a couple of days ago where I got to say, despite a lot of progressives, Ro Khanna included, saying that they are pushing for student debt cancellation none of them were there none to be found Why we, don't we have to, we should end the, we have to end this whole system if it if it's so fraudulent that at the end of the day people are going to beg to have their to have government with a stroke of the pen cancel these debts then nobody should be able to take out these loans in the first place yeah, I mean, that's a really good point, Robbie. Part of the issue here is that these loans are usurious to begin with. We used to have a much more robust public edu education system, and the funding was stripped away. Look at the UC schools, for example, how the, 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 the provisions for the funding for those schools was stripped away, and they served a more limited part of the population, as, frankly, we saw a rise in college enrollment in part because of the end of segregation in the 1960s. That is not a, um, an accident that those things happened at the same time. I would argue for a robust public education system that provides college for free the same way that we have K through 12 for free, which at one point was disputed and not a right in this country either. But as we became a country that required people to have a high school education to get a job, that we we decided that we needed to have an educated workforce that can meet the moment. And similarly, now that we require college or vocational programs for people to contribute to society meaningfully, we should allow people to get the for free instead of the system we have right now, which is that affluent people from affluent families get to go to college for the sticker price, where poor people have to pay a premium in terms of, uh, in terms of usurious interest rates that are as high as 8%. 
So people who have mortgages and cars who are complaining, well, what about my debt? I agree. Let's work about work on programs to make those things more affordable as well. But student debts are unique insofar as that they're held by the federal government and can be canceled without any cost. This does not affect the federal balance sheet. This does not put us into debt. And moreover, it's the federal government that reduced, induced people to take out these loans on a false promise saying this is going to benefit your life and benefit the country. Well, we held up our end of the bargain. We became educated in a part of the workforce. The government hasn't held up a, its bargain and instead is making money off of student debtors, many of whom have pull, paid back the full value of their loan, but are paying 25%, 50%, 100% more, sometimes multiple factors more over the, the, the term of their loan because of these interest rates. Right. And, and the cost is just completely out of control. And so you'll hear from a lot of uh, baby boomers and even Gen Xers like, you know, I, I paid off my college debts. You know, I worked my way uh, through school. You know, I went to a, a state school in, in Maryland in, in the 90s. And OK, I had some student debt, but not not a ton. About 15 years later, I took my younger sister as a senior in high school to this college. I was really trying to you know, push her hard. You, you would love this place. You should go here. So I sat through like the parent thing. I'm looking at the prices. It was like it was like Harvard level costs compared to like what Harvard cost when I was going there. Like for this, I mean, it's a great well, these, school, but like these are, things like, aren't, aren't unrelated. The, I, there's studies have mm -hmm. shown. There's a study from I believe it's the Federal Reserve Bank of New York that uh, it, it's the loan subsidy that the, the cost is completely passed passed on via the sticker price. And plus this massive explosion in administrative costs. Massive explosion in Because professors costs. aren't getting more money. They're no, actually they getting they're actually getting much much less right. money. Well, and, and more of them are adjuncts, adjuncts right. who work for. <laughs> Right, and Pennies. so if, if a right. public if a public school is going to cost you you know forty thousand dollars a year, like right, and like, right, and not to mention that a huge part, uh, proportion of the debt that people have is from vacation vocational schools. I know that people want to make mm -hmm. um, this uh, unworthy Harvard grad the poster child for all of this, but ignore me, ignore my debt. The reality <laughs> is that Harvard is free now. After I graduated, they made it free, but that's a that's something for me and my therapist to talk about. But the reality is we're not talking about Harvard grads here. We're talking about many, many people that the largest proportion of debt is coming from people is, is is owned by people who went to a lot of these um, uh, for-profit colleges and also people who took out money for vocational training. And the idea that uh, that the folks want to characterize this as kind of Pete Buttigieg giving off for free should remember that people with means didn't take out debt. Nobody who could pay the full price of college signs up to pay an 8% interest rate that has the average borrower owing more. The average black borrower owes more 12 years after graduation than they did the day that they graduated. So, how, Brianna, how about a nine-year pause? Like, what, what, should, <laughs> what should, like... Well, that's the thing. Someone, so, take someone in my situation. I, I uh, had $18 worth of interest in the first year uh, that I paid my loans back, my, my law school loans back, right? I easily accrue, if I weren't able to keep up with my debts, still, I would easily accrue $10,000 of interest a year. The idea of having a nine-year pause, a 10-year pause, that's $100,000 saved. That's all well, money that I Well, they're not adding interest right principal. now either. I'm sorry? Well, now they're not adding interest. Like, they're also... Well, I, I know. I right. know, which is why yeah. I've been able to make such a dent in my loans. Right. I've been able to save more that can pay off the principal when things start up in a right. way that I've never been able to do before. So right. I think a lot of people, depending on your loan amount, but a lot of people think that an extended pause is much more beneficial than paying off just $10,000 of debt. Yeah. Kind do, of not, do, not take out, do not take out a loan to go to college. 
<laughs> cannot say that to our audience. Don't do it. Don't ever no, do it. You're still let your children do it. But I mean, it's that's a scam. That's Don't the, do it. That's the sad thing. You're still better off. Even though it's a scam, in general, you're probably still better I off. Think, I don't think so. I think people wait. Just take out a loan and just uh, do anything with that money other than like waste it on college. It, de- it depends on the college. There are definitely different returns on your investment, yeah. but they also don't tell you that. What they're telling everyone, and I think about my community. So many of my family members who were told just go and get these nursing degrees, go get these associate degrees, pay for these degrees that don't really in- increase your income at all, they're really pushing this as the American dream. It was a substitute. Right. It was a substitute for substantive social reforms as jobs were sent overseas and the neoliberalism of the 90s took over. They told all of the populations that were being left behind, it's your fault because you didn't get an education. So all of these low-income people ran and said, okay, I'm going to do what I was told. I'm going to get an education. And those people yeah. who weren't able to get ed- uh, degrees from esteemed institutions are really suffering the consequences the most right well, now. Well, I'm just worried about overly credentialed like you have to be if, right first you need well we decided oh you really got to graduate high school to be a productive member of society oh you got to really go to college to be a productive member of society what how many more years of mindless pointless time wasting education do we add on to this before like 35 before you can begin adult life and just like work and have a family and make money that doesn't that's bad well, i mean my, bad. my goal in life has always been to avoid doing real work and the more oh. college that you have, the better chance you have of not having to do actual work. Right. I mean, we're, work. we're pundits, so we right. don't, you know, I, I've, I have I, not I, put I, hammer to nail in it. my life. But uh, Not doing any work. Uh, anyway, I, I, think, I think you work hard, Ryan. I think you but it's hard. not work. This guy, he's got multiple <laughs> uh, pundit jobs, yes. whole family, cats escaping in the middle of the night. Yeah, but it's not work. Uh, it's not work. No. It's just fun. No. Brianna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. Always a pleasure. Coming up next, we'll tell you what's on our radars. Ryan, what's on your radar? Well, yesterday marked 28 years since the passing of Kurt Cobain, meaning he's now been gone for a year longer than he was with us. And the Philadelphia Inquirer marked it with a column by Abraham Gutman that opened me up to a side of Cobain's life I wasn't familiar with. And that was his halting experience with the opioid addiction treatment we now know as one of the most effective, if not the most effective, ways to treat a substance use disorder. Its generic name is buprenorphine. Its brand name is Suboxone, and it often, often just goes by bup. So I mentioned bup in a radar recently that focused instead largely on psychedelic and entheogenic treatments, but I wanted to give bup its due too. First, though, believe it or not, the New York Times recently ran a massive story on the potential psilocybin has for treating drug addiction. And if you or anyone you know might need it, the article is very much worth reading. But back to Bup. So it's widely known that Kurt Cobain struggled with intense stomach pain, used opiates to treat it, developed a heroin addiction, and after multiple interventions and forced detoxes, he took his own life. Now, as Gutman writes, in the spring of 1992, Cobain learned that Courtney Love, his girlfriend, was pregnant and he wanted to get clean. He was in Australia and also cut off from his supply of heroin, meaning his stomach pain came roaring back. A doctor gave him methadone in Australia and it was working. He said, quote, we went to this doctor who gave me these tablets that were methadone. By the end of the tour, I had a habit again and I had to go into detox again to straighten myself out again. That took a really long time, about a month, and that was it. Now, right here is where you can see the flaw in our approach to treatment. 
In the U.S., you're only in recovery, you're only, quote, clean, if you're totally abstinent from all drugs, including drugs prescribed by doctors for addiction like methadone and bup. There's no logic to that beyond just plain Puritan morality. Somebody on methadone is a normal functioning member of society. Yet Cobain was being told by our broader culture and by people around him that he, quote, had a habit. So he went into detox to get off methadone, which is insane, but which is where this treatment culture pushes people. Now, of course, he relapsed. And then in the fall of 1992, Cobain started treatment with a doctor named Robert Fremont, who treated celebrities. Now, it wasn't legal for opioid addiction at the time, but Fremont gave him buprenorphine. It worked. Cobain said, I was introduced to buprenorphine, which I found alleviates the stomach pain within minutes. It acts as an opiate, but it doesn't get you high. Now, for a deeper look at bup, check out this 2016 story in HuffPost called Dying to be Free, which lays out its history. Now, after that story came out, a friend of mine from graduate school reached out. She'd had a heroin problem back when I'd known her and said that in the mid-2000s, she got prescribed bup and it immediately took away her cravings. Over the years, she eventually tapered off of it, but some people keep using it indefinitely, and that's fine too. She told me that when she discovered it, she thought to herself, oh good, this should really basically solve our opioid addiction problem we have in the U.S. Except, of course, it hasn't. The treatment industry has fiercely resisted it. And besides the company that makes Suboxone, Big Pharma has no interest in giving people a way to get off the pills they're producing by the ton. Now, Fremont died in the summer of 1993, and by the fall or winter, with his supply of bup running dry, Kurt Cobain relapsed. In March 1994, after an intervention, he went back into detox. He lasted just a couple days. Courtney Love, who led the intervention, recognized the entire approach had been wrong, saying at his eulogy, quote, But I want you to know one thing, she said. That 80s tough love bull, it doesn't work. It's not real. It doesn't work. I should have let him, we all should have let him have his numbness. We should have let him have the thing that made him feel better, that made his stomach feel better. We should have let him have it instead of trying to strip away his skin. You go home and you tell your parents, don't you ever try that tough love bull on me because it doesn't effing work. That's what I think. Hmm. And I don't think she even quite understood at the time that there was such a positive alternative. I mean, obviously she knew that he had been, you know, surviving and, and doing, doing fine, getting by on buprenorphine. Uh, but I, ironically, his doctor, his, his, his doctor's children think he committed suicide um, because he was under all of this uh, pressure from investigations because he was, he was giving buprenorphine to these celebrities. And at the time, it was illegal. And it, it wasn't FDA approved for opioid treatment until 2002. And even today, th there are intense restrictions on how, on, on how and whether doctors are able to prescribe it and at what limits. It's one of the only medications that we, that we treat in such a way. I mean, you're making this libertarian's yeah. blood boil. Uh, I mean, yeah. how many times have I complained about how difficult the government authorities, the FDA, makes it for people to get medicine that they need, that they want yeah. to try? Um, yeah, it, you know, I, I think anyone, and probably many of our viewers have had this experience, it's a horrible experience, trying to deal with and manage people who are struggling with addiction, uh, with drug addiction, 
and you know you want them to snap out of it and you want them mm-hmm. to just stop just stop destroying yourself but that it doesn't work that right. never works it's hard it, it's some and sometimes nothing works but this these these drugs have a have a actual history of helping people right. ease off their addiction you know why not make them more available to people who fall into these yeah. categories so that they don't die and what uh, what the cobain story also does is it is it kind of flips on its head our understanding of some of the ways in which addiction works and, and the story of my, my friend from grad school too, that you know we, we have a very we have a this very stereotypical caricature idea of what a of what a heroin addict is, but actually there there are a huge right. spectrums. Uh, people people think you know we were taught in the eighties and nineties you, you touch heroin one time right. you're going to become an addict. We were taught day. that if you touch marijuana one time you become a heroin time. addict. But yeah. Touch marijuana yeah. on Monday, heroin addict by by Friday. Right. But Cobain had been using it for several years, and he actively yeah. in ninety one decided, you know what? I he he made a decision rather than getting sucked into addiction. Say I'm going to use right. this every day because it's the only thing that makes my stomach pain bearable. Like our our treatment of gastro issues. Uh, is just is just right. wretched. Like it's hard. Like people who live with those are just dying. And so he so he was medicating first, beyond anything else. So a first approach could be like, okay, you say that opiates work for this. Okay, let's find out. Let's get you on an actual prescription regimen of something that you don't inject have to inject into yourself in like a hotel room. Like let's try that first. And then if you if you find out that. Bup is taking away the pain, but also not getting you high from people who've taken it, who I know they say it's kind of like a, just a coffee buzz at, at the most. Like it, just, it really doesn't get you high. And if you are on Bup and you relapse, you don't get high. In other words, it counteracts. Hmm. Like, let's say you're like, oh, man, I just really need mm-hmm. a fix right now. You, t- you take something, you, just, you don't even feel it. So it takes away the craving because you're like, well, that was useless. It didn't do anything to me. And it, and it makes it almost impossible to overdose. I, I imagine fentanyl can overpower it. Mm-hmm. My research was before uh, fentanyl really exploded. But a rational society would say that is, that's the way to do it. And that's what Courtney Love was saying in his eulogy. That, that's, the way to, that's the way to treat this. Not to have this like, fake ID, idea that the only way you can be clean in this world is to just be completely abstinent from all medications. Right. Which doesn't work. You can look at studies of those kinds of programs or Alcoholics Anonymous. It right. doesn't work for like the vast majority of people who go through it because right. this, opioid, you're either clean yeah. or you're not. Dichotomy yeah. it just, do, just doesn't work. Yeah. Um, you have to get people to be able to manage their addiction right. and before they can even conceive of overcoming it. And this, this stuff does help. Right. And this detoxing, like you take bup as your with withdrawing too uh but this just straight clean detoxing you know that they where they dramatize in movies where people are just scratching their skin off and everything it's, right. it's torture it's horrible it's barbaric it's and it's against all medical science and one of the times that kurt cobain went through it he's he, he wrote in his diary he said I, I bought a gun um but i chose drugs instead which was like good like because mm-hmm. the, the, like you're in so much pain that at that point continuing with that pain isn't really a choice. You're either going one direction or the other. Right. And that time he chose to, to relapse. Mm. We all know that the, the next time that he was forced with that choice, he chose the gun. And now he's been gone for 28 years. Mm. 28 years today, huh? Yeah. 28 years yesterday. yesterday. Yeah. Mm. Great column by Abraham Goodman in the, in the Inquirer. Mm. 
really goes deep into his history. People should check that out. Looking forward to your radar up next. Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, on March 16th, Washington, D.C., as everyone knows, became one of the very last major metropolitan areas in the country to finally end mask mandates for students. According to Mayor Muriel Bowser, kids who attend D.C. public schools no longer have to wear masks. That's not always evident, of course. Earlier this week, Vice President Kamala Harris visited Thomas Elementary School. You can see her there. It's a public school, and she posed for photos with kids. Every single kid in that photo op is wearing a mask. Harris is not. don't know why these politicians keep doing these photo ops where they look foolish, unmasked, as the kids who are not particularly at risk from coronavirus all masked. Anyway, Thomas Elementary did not respond to my request for clarification about their masking policies, so it's not clear to me if the school actually requires masks or if the kids were just wearing them voluntarily or if they were told to put them on for the photo. In any case, the school would hardly be alone in keeping a mask mandate in place if it does still have a mask mandate, because in fact, many of the city's public schools, many of their public charter schools, which are overseen by a school board that is separate from D.C. public schools, they have kept mask mandates in place. Indeed, several have no plans to ever end the mandate, which is a source of tremendous frustration for some parents I spoke with. Our principal told us that right now, masks are still required indoors for all students, says Lindsay Elman, a mother of a child at Mundo Verde Bilingual Public Charter School. Mundo Verde is one of five D.C. area foreign language immersion charter schools that run from kindergarten through fifth grade. And they act as feeder schools for District of Columbia International School, DCI, which teaches sixth through twelfth grade. And they are, by and large, keeping mask mandates in place, even though they don't have to. DCI itself, for instance, is sticking with an indoor mask mandate. Students only gained the right to go maskless outdoors as recently as March 28th. That was last week. They wore them during sports. Outdoor track was masked, says Lauren Peterson, a mother with three kids whom I spoke with. She has twin 7th graders and a 10th grader at DCI. Her fourth and youngest child attended school at Elsie Whitlow Stokes, which is another one of these these charters that feed into DCI. Peterson pulled the kid due to uncertainty about the mask mandates ever going away for good. Yu Ying Charter School, which is a Chinese-English dual language charter, is waiting until April 25th to end the mask mandate. Yu Ying is also enforcing a travel quarantine. Unvaccinated students, which is a category that includes virtually all the pre-K students, and their immediate family members are forbidden from leaving the D.C., Maryland, and Virginia tri-state area. If they do leave, they must abide by a 7- to 10-day quarantine period. The fact that these policies are far, far stricter than what the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommend is not lost on families with kids in these schools. Quote, parents are not really allowed in the building for any reason, says Paul Fraioli, a parent. Up until a month ago, they wanted to have the objects people touched sanitized. The parents I spoke with for this article all expressed frustration with school administrators who had pledged to do exactly what CDC guidance and the scientific consensus believed was right. But they abandoned this course of action once health experts conceded that demasking was safe enough. For the past two-plus years, we followed the science like it's the Bible. And now people's irrational fears are taking over these policy decisions, says Elman, the DCI parent. Frioli, the Yu Ying parent, pointed out that the CDC is moving away from raw case numbers as the relevant COVID-19 metric. What really matters to federal health officials is the hospitalization rate. But Yu Ying is focused on community spread, case counts, to determine its COVID policies. The school's health and safety plan notes that even the outdoor mask mandate will be brought back 
if the community spread level increases from low to medium. The plan also includes outdated recommendations that unnecessarily warn students and staff to avoid touching their masks and to wash their hands if they do. Be careful when taking off their mask and wash their hands after removing it. The plan reads, store the mask out of anyone's reach. Use a clean mask if someone touches the one you're currently wearing. So Yu Ying declined to offer clarification for this article, and none of the other schools responded to my request for comment at all. Frioli, Elman, and Peterson, the parents I talked to, said the strict policies largely reflect the preferences of the staff rather than the parents. Many teachers indicated in surveys that they were only comfortable working in the schools if the mask mandate remains in place, even though virtually all teachers are vaccinated, as are most students. Nationally, public school teachers unions have constituted a powerful interest group in favor of keeping students masked, and until recently, in favor of virtual school. Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, has previously stated that she wanted to see, quote, no transmission in schools at all before she would support the removal of masks. D.C.'s public charter schools are generally not unionized, though Mundo Verde opted to join the American Federation of Teachers two years ago in the middle of the pandemic. In any case, it's disappointing that the somewhat differently structured gover this government that's differently structured at DCI, Yu Ying, and their cohort schools, well, it's not really produced better results from the standpoint of mask and distancing weary families. Quote, I've never even seen my son's kindergarten teacher in person, said Fraley. So, you know, I'm a big fan of charter schools, a school choice, setting up alternative educational systems for parents to experiment with and find the right school environment for their families. So the, these schools, these are D.C. charter schools that are governed by a, they have their own board that's mm -hmm. separate from D.C. public schools. And they are masking and doing COVID mitigation more aggressively than any than any system I can find anywhere in the United States. And the par the parents are really frustrated. Well, what's interesting is that, so clearly charter schools are downstream from culture. Yeah. Like whether, whether they're independent or not. And certainly some parents are going to be livid about this, but I wonder if there's a bigger cohort of parents who want that because charter schools depend on their ability to recruit people. A pub, a regular public school just get, you know, gets students from the neighborhood. Uh, if too many kids from that neighborhood start going to charter schools, that becomes a big problem. And then there does become some competition for those kids. But charter schools are all about recruiting kids to come to their schools. And so they want parents to be happy mm -hmm. with their experience there. And that's kind of the guiding principle behind them, that they're going to perform better because they're you know, incentivized to do so. So are you finding that if charter schools are downstream of culture, that some of the pro-masking culture is predominant there? Or... Like, why would they be going up against DCPS, you know, running, running more conservative than them, and also angering their parents who are their customers? As far as I can tell, it is, it is the staff demanding this. Oh, interesting. And they are worried. It's staff retention. They are worried they will lose teachers. Uh, although, when I spoke to these parents, they were saying they, they, they think the school shouldn't take that concern very, as seriously because where are they going to go? These teachers quit. Like, the D.C. public school system is not requiring masks anymore. So you, it's, at some point, right. if only these charter schools are, are the, are the masks, right. like, like, where else can they go? But they, it, it's, it's mostly to keep the, the staff happy, and the staff are demanding this. And, they, and their surveys, they've done surveys with their staff members where the staff say they want a ridiculous level of compliance with all this COVID stuff before they're even comfortable. So right. in that way, it's just not very different from the traditional public school system, which has 
all throughout the pandemic was also beholden to not so much to its individual teachers, but to kind of the right. larger teachers union uh, leadership, which right. was very kind of monomaniacal about this. It's interesting that some of these charter schools are starting to unionize. Yeah, that was yeah, the whole I saw business. that. Well, I looked at whether the whole... they were unionized, and yeah, yeah. Mundo Verde is, Bas- uh, is unionized. And I bet we'll continue to see more of that as... Yeah, probably. And the, biz- that, like the real business model for charter schools was like, we don't have a union. Right. <laughs> so we can, we, can pay, we can pay less and we can work the teachers longer hours. Well, I, I mean, that, that's certainly that's, a, that's what's said about charters. I, in some ways, I think they're set up to be more flexible or more. Right. Chinese language. Right. There's like more. Spanish and there's more. Version, like. In some ways, there's more input from the staff. The staff have more. Uh, there, there's more collaborative decision making. They don't have the, the guarantees of employment in certain mm-hmm. pre- that. that that the that union offers in the traditional public school, some can see that as a benefit. They'd rather have flexibility. They'd rather have more input, even if that means less job security and less, right. you know, absolutely locked in pay rate, that kind of stuff. But uh, but yeah, the, the pandemic has <laughs> scrambled this, a lot of people's approach. Right. To this is this is one of those not like that situations where it's like we're gonna, we're going to empower <laughs> our staff right. to really to really guide our philosophy here, and they're like, cool, we're masking. Until the end of the year. It's like, oh, no, not like that. But I thought you'd appreciate it. Even though I'm an advocate of charter schools, I can criticize them if go. I don't like their policies. And if I think they're letting down some parents, which I really think they are. So they should take a look at and this. What, what, was the, the, what was the line that would have the charters lose, Robbie? We have found yeah, it. We have found it. But so, that is insane. Like, they're still telling kids, quor- they're still doing quarantines. Quarantine. If you travel out of state. If you go to Hershey, Pennsylvania. It's pretty nuts. Again, this is so far beyond what the CDC even recommends. That it, and they all said all along that was part of the parents' frustration because they said the school said all along we're just going to do what the CDC we're says. Just we're the just going to do it. And they're like, okay, the CDC says we can pretty much go back to normal. Like, no, they said, well, no, no. We're, we're still doing what the CDC said. What they said. We said said. We didn't say saying. Oh. Said. Anyway, Team Rising will join us next, so stick around. Federal Reserve's battle against inflation will spark a recession in the U.S., Deutsche Bank warned yesterday, being the first big bank to predict an economic decline in the U.S. Now, according to CNN, the recession, quote, reflects growing concern that the Fed will hit the brakes on the economy so hard that it will inadvertently end the recovery that began just two years ago, end quote. So just like inflation, black swan funds are also thriving. Now, black swan funds, which are designed to protect against extreme sell-offs, have grown to more than $5 billion from $3.8 billion at the end of 2020, according to Eureka Hedge PTE Limited. ExxonMobil Corporation said on Monday its first quarter results could top a seven-year quarterly record. How wonderful for Exxon. According to Reuters, this is with operating profits from pumping oil and gas alone up $9.3 billion. That's just terrific, isn't it? Host of the Working People podcast, Max Alvarez, and Newsweek contributor, Pamela Denise Long, join us now to discuss. Welcome to you both. Thanks, guys. Hi. Glad I didn't have to commute this morning. (laughs) Right, but you you, you could have contributed to Exxon's uh, record-breaking quarter. (laughs) Denise, aren't, aren't you so thrilled for these major corporations that are just doing so well in this environment? It's, they're up against so much. It's so difficult making money when you're increasing your prices constantly, but yet they're managing to do it somehow. 
Yeah. And, you know, if I made the amount that the CEO of Exxon would, I would benefit from paying over $4 a gallon for gas. Um, and it would not be a big dent in my wallet as well as the rest of Americans. It is amazing to me that post-pandemic, post-pandemic and with all that has happened with Ukraine and Russia that um, we are allowing, and I will say allowing because there are decisions that are made that contribute to this uh, enormous profiteering, record-breaking profiteering that Exxon and others are seeing. It's offensive. Uh, Max, you know, an economic uh, decline, people are already in, in bad shape. Uh, it would just have, you know, talk to us about the catastrophic effects this would have on working people. Right. Um, you know, it's funny, uh, <laughs> when I was reading the the article about the Black Swan stuff, I thought about like my, one of my favorite 30 Rock episodes where Tracy Morgan is talking to Larry King about the financial markets in Asia, which he clearly knows nothing about. And he says, Larry, I am not an expert, but I do have a strong opinion. And that's that's kind of where I am right now. Like, I think I think Denise said it right. Like, this is record-breaking profiteering. And I want people to really remember that because these same forces that are raking in record profits uh, are also kind of funding the sort of propaganda uh, uh, arm of this assault that is trying to convince us that rising, you know, um, prices, the, the kind of inflation squeeze that working people are feeling right now is just the result of kind of acts of God, right? Like the COVID-19 pandemic, like the war in Ukraine, things that we have no control over. But if you look closely, you will see that companies like Exxon and um, you know the oil uh, industry writ large, they have been jacking up stock buybacks and dividends over the past year. They are they are absolutely taking advantage of this geopolitical crisis to stuff their pockets with as much money as they possibly can while consumers momentarily have the ability to pay it. I think that's one thing that we should remember is that actually what happened during the COVID-19 pandemic, and it was bipartisan. Trump started it, Biden kind of continued it. But what the government did was it injected money directly into people's pockets, not just with uh, the stimulus checks, but also the child tax uh, credits, the unextended employment benefits, so on and so forth. And we saw historic drops in poverty momentarily. Now we are seeing the ruling class claw that all back by deliberately jacking up prices and um, the, the inflation has already outpaced uh, wage growth over the past year. Meanwhile, corporate profits rose 37%, which is the most since the Fed started tracking that data, the, the biggest rise in a single year since like 1948. CEOs are on earnings calls bragging about how they've been jacking up prices on all of us. And, you know, we're, we're just going to like sit here and wait for a bigger recession to fall on our heads. It is it is. It is class war, right? Rich, Richard Wolf famously said this to me on the Real News Network. He said inflation is a form of class war. And I think that's what we are seeing. This is not just an act of God. This is not the market doing what it is. This is people profiting off of death and despair and disruption. And we're all getting screwed like we always do. Right. And, and Denise, it has a number of layers to it, right? So, you know, prices are, are not just, as Max says, the result of this invisible hand moving them around. They're, they're also political because companies, 
will will charge what they can get away with. And so you saw this interesting mm-hmm. phenomenon developing where you had some supply chain driven inflation in the very beginning, and then you have this kind of media panic about inflation. And the companies then see this panic going on and see all the conversation, and they see the space then for them to start driving prices up. And as the prices go up, that also then puts pressure on Congress to stop talking about you know, doing a, a Build Back Better bill, which includes you know, tax increases on these very companies. And so at the same time that they're able to raise prices and increase their record profits, that's putting pressure on the public not to, kind of, not to come after them, not, not to redistribute the, the gains from the economy in new ways. And so it really does end up being uh, cla- class warfare through multiple means. But the, the one difference being usually if, if somebody's waging war, they're paying a price the price that they're paying is less than whatever the person they're fighting against is paying. And so that's why it's beneficial for them to wage that war. But they're waging a war and they're getting paid handsomely to do it. Uh, Yes, uh, handsomely, like the most, the handsomest. (laughs) Uh, It's (laughs) astounding. I, uh, I think there are a few things that struck me by what you were saying. Part of it is how in the United States we struggle with this idea of socialism and this idea of if we were to regulate these companies better as we should so that the American public is not getting milked um, and seeding the retirement plans, the $7 million worth of pension benefits, for example, that the Exxon, the Exxon CEO earns. Uh, I think we struggle with the idea of that. I think we struggle with the idea of what is the role of government in business. Um, we struggle with the idea of making and forcing our elected officials to actually do something to benefit the American public because that feels like socialism. It feels like government uh, dependency. And then I think so many people also are really buying into the idea that this is a Putin problem, right? When the reality is this is your local, national, domestic CEOs who are doing this in large part to the American public. Well, significant price increases over the past year were reported yesterday, the largest numbers including natural gas increasing 119%, heating oil up 93%, coffee increasing 85%, and WTI crude going up 68%. So, I mean, you know, Max, this is just people who need to get to work, people who need, you know, and the cost of food going up, other things. Uh, This is really, really hurting people. It absolutely is. And um, like I said, that's that's kind of sadly, you know, how these things always go is that working people really bear the brunt of this corporate greed and all of this economic malfeasance that has just been so regularized mm-hmm. in our system. Because what 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 power do we have over it, right? And and like the deck is so stacked against us that even now, given everything that we're talking about, given that we can actually see and hear, right, the the earnings calls where CEOs are bragging about their record profits last year. And we're talking like across the board, like so many companies that experienced strikes, workers strikes last year, had seen their most profitable years ever. Just one example, John Deere. Remember 10,000 John Deere workers went on strike in the fall of last year? This was during a year, a contract negotiation year, when John Deere recorded its most profitable year 
ever in the billions, right? And it's like, and at the same time, they were trying to take more from their workforce. They were trying to demand more concessions. And that is the position that we've been put in. Because even now, when we can see all of this corporate profiteering, all of this taking advantage of geopolitical crises like the COVID-19 pandemic and the war in Ukraine, I'm watching mainstream media and I'm seeing pundits actually legitimately try to blame workers demanding higher wages for inflation, right? And as I said, federal minimum wage has not gone up. Some wages have gone up, um, which is great, but they have not gone up across the board and they have not kept up with inflation, which is pretty much the position that working people have been in for the past half century. We have been working more. We've been working longer. We've been working harder. Workers in the United States have been more productive than ever, but more of that productivity has been siphoned off into the coffers of the 1%, the owning class, while workers' wages have largely stayed stagnant over that time. I mean, the cost of living just keeps going up. How long can we keep going in this direction? Yeah, yeah, that's a good yeah. question. <laughs> yeah, and I think we're going to see, uh, we're, I, people forget that the Arab Spring was really sparked by rising bread prices before it evolved into uh, what mm -hmm. it became. I, I think we're going to see uh, uprisings, protests, riots all over the world over the next year. Uh, th I think that's one of the easiest predictions that we can we can make but uh denise and max um thank you so much for joining us thanks guys thank you good to see you and we'll have more rising right after this ever since tesla billionaire elon musk bought over nine percent of twitter and is now a member of the platform's board users who support donald trump have been asking the spacex founder to reinstate the former president's account as everyone probably knows, Trump was banned from Twitter in 2020 due to the risk of further incitement of violence. Twitter referenced the events of January 6th and several of Trump's tweets that referred to the 2020 election as illegitimate, which for the record, it was not. <laughs> we have to say that. Thank you, YouTube. I mean, we believe it, but we also have to say it. <laughs> the FBI has contracts for 5,000 licenses to use Bobble X, a software made by Bobble Street that lets users search social media sites within a geographic area and use other parameters. Social media users seem to foreshadow the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, and the FBI apparently missed it, despite it being absolutely everywhere for weeks. Now the agency is doubling down on its efforts to surveil users, raising alarms for privacy advocates. Here with us to discuss the latest on the fallout of January 6th is Ankush Kardori. He is a contributing writer for New York Magazine's Intelligence Recite and contributing editor at Politico Magazine. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. And yes, yeah, so you didn't really need any sophisticated surveillance to know that January 6th was going to be a massive demonstration. I mean, the way, the way you organize tens of thousands of people to come somewhere is you publicly broadcast that you're doing so, which the organizers did. So why, why do they think, they, given the powers that they already had, basically the powers of sight, uh, and they were unable to see it coming, that new powers are going to somehow change the calculus? Uh, look, I think you're exactly right about the information that appears to have been available. Uh, unfortunately, the FBI has never really provided an account of how they missed this. Um, I think, you know, looking for new powers is always, you know, kind of a reaction to a significant um, political kind of national security event, as I think the FBI sort of considers it uh, reasonably. Um, and this trend, you know, it's something that's historically happened um, pretty much every time uh, something like, you know, a very consequential uh, sort of act of, you know, 
demonstration or violence occurs. Um, you know, maybe they think that it'll allow them to do better, although I would just like to know like why they didn't catch it the first time around, which I think should be the first order of business. I mean, the first trial in the January 6th prosecutions was um, a guy whose son had provided a tip to the FBI um, on Christmas Eve, and the FBI didn't even follow up on it until after the riot at the Capitol had occurred. So I think there's a lot of, frankly, questions about the FBI's own conduct that I'd like to see answered before they go around you know, gathering all sorts of additional information, which while it may be legal, um, justifiably raises a lot of concerns among privacy advocates and I, I imagine among many users of these platforms. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, you know, people hear all the time, we're supposed to, if you see something, say something. Then you find out, like in a lot of these cases, uh, I think Parkland being a very famous one, uh, the, the, uh, the Marjorie Sonam Douglas school shooting, you know, this, this, the teenager, the, the perpetrator, he was, he was reported to the FBI. He, everyone who knew this kid spoke up to authorities, up to and including the FBI, about his alarming behavior, I think using specific language that they were worried he was going to shoot up a school. It was not, it was not followed up on by the FBI. I think they, like, lost the, 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 the number or something. It was, it was totally incompetent. So, you know, this stuff happens routinely. So how can they, you know, sit back and say, right, we, we need to be able to, like, access to everybody's social media data, all this stuff, when they don't even, they're not even doing a competent job with the normal, like, someone calls you and says, hey, what about this thing? And, like, they, it just gets filed away and they don't do anything about it. No, I mean, I agree with you um, that there are real serious questions about this. It would be nice if Congress could actually start to ask Unfortunately, the pattern in, you know, the instance like you described and in the run up to January 6th is that we have all these questions and then the FBI just never answers them. Uh, and no one in Congress ever pushes for answers. And, um, you know, I think we're in this sort of pattern where when the executive and legislative branches are controlled by the same party, there basically is no congressional oversight of DOJ or FBI. Um, and that's true both under this administration, uh, the Democratic administration and under the Republican right. administration for the Trump years. And so, uh, you know, I think that this is first and foremost uh, a political issue and a, 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 that should be addressed through Congress. Uh, just fortunately, they just seem incapable or unwilling to exercise any real oversight. Well, and, and the problem, I think, often being that law enforcement is both, you know, it careens wildly from underreactive to overreactive. So with January 6th, you know, they, sh they should have been absolutely more prepared and they weren't. But then in the wake, there, you know, those fences go back up, the, the tanks are around, the, the streets of the city shut down. When there's even the barest hint or, or discussion of some activity, even though it's never going to... Uh, the, the situation where the sitting president calls on people to, to do this kind of thing to the Capitol, obviously not repeating itself, but they're preparing as if that's what's going on. So it's just it's, it's disproportionate in, in both directions. It's never the right amount of force. Yeah, and I don't want to draw uh, uh, compare the two events and suggest that they're similar, but obviously this is a pattern that goes back to 9-11 too, mm -hmm. when there was a failure to uh, uh, detect that attack in advance, and then there was a very significant counter overreaction within the administrative state and, and the national surveillance bureaucracy, including like the bulk data collection at NSA um, and, and so forth. And so like this is not an unusual um, uh, a pattern doesn't mean it's acceptable by any means. I agree with you. Um, but uh, as I said, I think that the real long-term problem here has been one of oversight uh, within Congress. 
And since you, you've been following these prosecutions so closely, so to, to pivot just a little bit, what 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 is the what is the status so far of of how the kind of case against uh, the first the pe- people that kind of uh, invaded the Capitol, but also what's what's your guess as to how high this will end up going? So that's a very good question because there's been some developments on that front. So at the moment, there are eight, about 800 um, pending cases in the District of Columbia charging people who were uh, almost exclusively present that day. Uh, I think like Enrique Terrio is a, a, a maybe the only exception. Um, but uh, people present that day involved in the riot charged with a variety of different offenses ranging from very low level, like the, the lowest level misdemeanor called uh, parading, um, to more significant charges that include obstructing the, con- obstructing the congressional uh, proceeding, the county of the electoral votes that day. Um, and there have been questions about kind of, you know, how high up and how far the government uh, really has been going or wants to go. Um, more recently, there's been reporting um, from the New York Times, I think actually just today or yesterday, uh, about a subpoena that they obtained, a new subpoena that suggests that the government is now trying to reach further into the sort of orbit of the funders, um, organizers, people like Amy Kramer, and potentially even um, government officials in the White House or in Congress who were involved with like planning the riots. So um, that's been kind of the um, the sort of strategic approach that the Justice Department has adopted, kind of working its way up, if you will. That's a debatable approach. It's not necessarily the only approach they needed to adopt or not, or not necessarily even the correct one. Uh, but descriptively, that's kind of what's happening. Well, Ankush Kardori, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Stick around for more Rising right after this. Well, last night, actor Sean Penn made an appearance on Hannity's show on Fox News. Penn was in Ukraine shooting a documentary for Vice when Russia invaded Ukraine in February. And as things escalated, Penn left the country. He has since returned to Ukraine and Poland to finish the documentary. While on Fox, Penn said that it's clear that Ukraine will win this, and he urged America to take a harder stance deploying its nuclear arsenal. Let's watch. I know that Trump gave them javelins. I know that they had some defenses, but if you go back to the Budapest Agreement, they were at the time the third largest nuclear power in the world. Mm-hmm. And they, they made an agreement that they'd give those weapons to, the, to Russia to be destroyed in exchange for protection from Russia, Great Britain, and the U.S. Uh, lesson to be learned here, don't give up your nuclear weapons if you have them, because you can't believe people like Vladimir Putin. Well, even countries that have nuclear weapons can remain intimidated to use them, and we're seeing that now with our own country. And I fear what that legacy is going to be. We don't, well, no one wants to see a nuclear conflict. I don't want to see one. Nobody At does. the same time, if only one bully is going to be able to use those weapons as a threat, we got to rethink what we're doing. Yikes. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I heard, uh, I saw a couple of kind of national security types making the same point on Twitter, saying that, uh, you know, we've had 70 years of experience with, uh, you know, Russia keeping us out of nuclear war. So why are we so reluctant to get into a conflict with them? You know, we know how to handle this. It's like, yeah, I think that the way that we survive 70 years is by not getting into that right. conflict. And also, watching this unfold doesn't, shouldn't give anybody any confidence that we have a handle on this. Right. And when he says, 
he, he, he misspeaks. He says, well, if only one country can be a bully and use nuclear weapons. But, that, but Russia hasn't used its nuclear well, weapons. I mean, he's saying, like, using the threat of them. Well, but they're yeah. not. But we're all using the threat of them. Right. Because, so that, it's just not true. Like, Russia is not the only Poland. one using the threat of them, yeah, right? Don't touch Germany. We right. will. We are using the threat of them because if they attack a NATO country, we will nuke them. Or we might nuke yeah. them. Or we'll, we the might threat is The threat is in the air. The threat is, so the threat is, is mutually working. Ukraine, unfortunately, find it, finds itself in this position where it is vulnerable to Russian attack. But it is not. There's no commitment to defend it in place. So it is a country that, under the framework that exists, you can criticize the framework. You can think it's flawed how it arose. It just it just is what it is. They can be attacked without provoking a nuclear retaliation. So they are being attacked, which is bad. But the nuclear deterrent thing is working because we're not in a full blown war with Russia. Russia isn't going to attack us. They're going to not. They're not going to attack France. They're not going to attack Germany, Poland, etc. So I, I don't. So, so Sean Penn is just wrong in what he's right. saying. And uh, maybe it's the case that Putin wouldn't have invaded if Ukraine still had nuclear weapons. Yeah, I think that might be. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I, I don't. I don't know that I disagreed with what Hannity right. was saying. I. Yeah. Right. The the idea of of having nuclear weapons is to make yourself well. You're not going to get attacked by a nuclear superpower anymore. Right. Um, that's why I didn't really care. I think I was saying this yesterday. I'm not sure if you were on with us yet. Um, you know, when we try to, the, the, the elaborate efforts we go to, pre, to prevent, uh, like we were worried about um, uh, Saddam seeking weapons of mass destruction. Mm-hmm. Like, well, what happens if he gets them? He just joins the coalition of the, non, right. of the non-war making. That's a good thing. Right, actually. So it, it shouldn't be something we try to prevent. Uh, I, I generally feel that way about Iran and North Korea mm-hmm. as well. So... So, yeah, I, I don't know that, that, that going in the other direction was, was a good... Or, or countries that go in that direction, they're going in that direction because they're just expecting the U.S. to defend them. We have an obligation to defend them, right. not themselves. Right. No, yeah. Uh, I, and I think we just can't forget what a nuclear war means. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it just... It feels like there's a little bit of forgetting going on. Right. Play and, the end of Dr. Strangelove here the, with the bombs dropping. Yeah, I mean, the, Sean Penn has seen that movie. Sean Penn lived through the entire Cold War. I mean, there's, there is creeping into the conversation this, this belief that we could just drop a few tactical nuclear just weapons. See, just, yeah. just see what happens. Uh, there was, that, uh, there was this, the TikTok guy who was joking being, as a White House uh, correspondent saying, don't we have some like small nukes that we could <laughs> do? It's like mini nukes. And again, the satire is becoming right. rea- reality that you think uh, you'll just do a mini nuke here, they'll do a mini nuke there, and then we'll stop right there. Right. And it'll be, you know, there'll be some radioactivity. Earth will survive. Life on Earth. (laughs) Different. Earth will, like, we're not going to blow up the Earth. A a rock will still orbit the sun. There will just be no one left on it. So let's not not do that. We take for granted our own survival as a species too easily. Very, yes, very much too easily. Yeah. We're not as... We're not as smart as we think. We're not a space colonizing race yet. Let's not give it up now. We're, <laughs> yes. we're going to be an intergalactic empire of humans yeah. are going to spread throughout the solar system unless we screw it up once, right now in this window for the next right. 100 years. Before once we're at once Elon point. has his little base on Mars. Then we can do, yeah, then Earth, let it go. Yeah, yeah. Light it up. Turn yeah, it into well, glass. Once C- yeah. <laughs> Twitter CEO Elon Musk <laughs> yes. has spread to uh, has Or spread the, to the, a- the AI that is the Elon Musk. The Musk AI, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
That, that'll, be his, that'll be his immortality. AI. Yeah, sure. All right, stick around. We'll have more rising right after this. Kim, what's on your radar? Well, you may have been hearing the term ESG lately. Last Saturday, Elon Musk tweeted, I'm increasingly convinced that corporate ESG is the devil incarnate. People who follow the Great Reset and the World Economic Forum, such as Glenn Beck, often warn against it and are even encouraging legislation to stop it from being used. But it isn't just those who are against ESG talking about it. You may have seen it in headlines on Bloomberg, MarketWatch, or Forbes. So what is it? Well, ESG stands for Environment, Social, and Corporate Governance. It's similar to a credit score, except rather than being based around a company's revenue and history of paying back debts, the ESG score is centered around sustainability and ethics. It's currently only given to corporations, but I think it's easy to imagine a future where the score is assigned to individuals as well. Now, the system was set up as a way to let investors, quote unquote, invest responsibly. Many people pride themselves on buying only sustainable products and purchasing from ethical companies. So an ESG score, which is widely used by many investment and fund management firms, makes it easy to determine which companies these are. Now, you can invest your money and feel good, too. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is the system is subjective to whomever decides what ethical is. Though many people believe the ESG score is about climate change and the environment, the truth is the social and governance aspects of the score have just as much weight, sometimes even more, than a company's environmental impact. So the E obviously stands for environment. That's carbon footprint, pollution, and waste. The S stands for social which judges things such as how well a company embraces social justice and how diverse a company is. The G stands for governance. Does the company embrace things like a diversity board and who is in charge? Those sound nice enough, except this is just a small list of what goes under each category and the people deciding what is or isn't ethical, like in most Silicon Valley-based companies, are clearly liberal elites. For example, Tesla, a company that makes electric vehicles, has a moderate to moderately poor score. How can this be? Think whatever you want about Elon Musk. There's no doubt his car company has been a game changer for the environment. Yet somehow, out of the five U.S.-based automotive companies, companies like Ford, which make gas-guzzling trucks, Tesla's ESG score is the worst. Why is that? Well, because it turns out what liberal elites think about Elon Musk seems to matter. The scoring system takes into account his eclectic personality, his tendency to tweet whatever he wants, his views on COVID and his libertarian politics. Try to make sense of this. Lockheed Martin, a company that produces weapons bringing death and destruction upon the planet, has a higher social responsibility score than Tesla. Why is that? Sorry, I don't mean higher. They have a better social responsibility score. It's actually the lower the score, the better it is. So theirs is actually better than Tesla's. Well, it's because ESG scores are based on what neoliberal elites consider to be moral and good. It's good to supply weapons to our so-called friends. They use them to kill bad guys. Never mind the fact that they also kill children, but it's bad to criticize COVID lockdown policies. Never mind the fact you've arguably done more to advance a greener planet, make space travel cheaper, and bring internet to all than any government or organization on earth. The score is political. So the company reigning at the very top of the ESG scoring list is, believe it or not, Bill Gates founded Microsoft. Are we surprised? 
So ESG scores determine how much and how easy it is for a company to secure funds and investments. So it's important to have a good score. The better the score, the greater the cash flow. It's why we're seeing companies go woke by regurgitating slogans like Black Lives Matter while hypocritically using prison labor. It's why companies refuse to do business with controversial people and businesses like when Parler suddenly was dropped from Amazon and Apple. Perhaps it's why GoFundMe dropped the trucker convoy. Despite people thinking these companies make these moves out of some sort of moral signaling, the reality is that many companies don't want to harm their ability to attract investors. They feel forced to make these sort of moves. But who's forcing them? Who's in control of these scores? The people deciding whether or not you are moral and good matters. And I think it's easy to see why this type of moral scoring system can be easily abused. One might think the system is a good idea, it just needs tweaking. But any sort of score that directly ties cash flow to morals and ethics is ripe for abuse. The scores can not only change on a whim based on what the latest woke fad is, but based on what benefits the people in charge. Do we really want neoliberal elites to have the power to compel a company to completely change its ethos in order to raise their scores? This has massive implications for society. Companies are modifying their behavior to ingratiate themselves with those in power. They're changing their slogans and advertisements. They're censoring content. They're firing controversial people. Speak up, you might lose your job because you're bad for the company's ESG score. Here's another example. 10 years ago, Disney's ESG score was considered one of the worst. Now, with all the changes they've made to be more inclusive, such as the commitment to make half of all characters from the LGBTQ, LGBTQI plus community, even though they represent only a fraction of the greater population, and made moves to rid themselves, such as right-winger Gina Carino, their score is one of the best. It's right up there with Microsoft. Though the scores haven't been used yet on individuals, We've seen some semblance of it already happening unofficially. It's what cancel culture is based on, but it's become more than just Twitter mobs coming after people. We've seen individuals banned from using social media and services like PayPal and GoFundMe refusing to send payouts to controversial people. They're not doing this because they're morally agreeing with it. They're doing it for their bottom line. Social credit systems are already being implemented in China where good behavior gets rewarded and bad behavior results in societal shunning. ESG scores are the corporate form of this. Even if it never reaches the individual level, the impact it's having on companies ultimately affects us all. It affects which companies survive, what messages companies convey, what content we can consume, and whether or not you have a job. So if what you're doing says, if what you're doing or saying goes against neoliberal elites, you could find your company going out of business or you yourself without a job. I'm just curious if you guys, Robbie and Ryan, have you guys heard of ESG scores? This has kind of been making the social media round since Elon kind of came out and said, this is terrible. Obviously, Glenn Beck's been talking about it a lot because it is discussed quite a bit in the World Economic Forum and by Klaus Schwab as the mechanism of the future to kind of push companies and society in the direction that they want. Um, but, you know, obviously, if you're going to base a score off of morality, who gets to decide what the morality is? Yeah. How, how do they factor that in? Like, let's say he tweets something that somebody doesn't like. How like what's the mechanism for that to be factored into? Well, a score? like like credit scores, it's not exactly transparent. So they, they we really don't know what does affect a company's score as much. There are some things that are obvious and they get consultants and consultants will help them figure that out. So for example, if you add recycling bins, you know, like when Disney decided to add recycling bins to their parks, that of course raised their score. 
but uh, so so there are some obvious things, but then there are things that are not as obvious when it comes to environment. It's a bit more obvious when it comes to social. It's not as obvious. And when it comes to governance, it's not as obvious as well, because they could just not like your CEO and decide, well, then you get a lower score. It's more of just societal perception. And it is based on what the neoliberals believe to be good and bad. Yeah, I'm well, Tesla's got gotten sued for ra- race relations in there. I know very right, so little helped, about that, this, right. so I'm just Googling around. Uh, the Motley Fool says, yeah, it, this looks, incre- it looks like it's incredibly political to me. Like it would be border, bordering on arbitrary. Um, not so much for the, the criteria you just mentioned, Kim, like, you know, if you, if you for environmental, uh, adding environmentally friendly options, if that's relevant to your industry, that seems maybe a little less political, but for, 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 gov- for their governance score, they consider the, the composition of the board in terms of diversity and independence, um, executive compensation, uh, business ethics, uh, a lot of things that sound exactly like you described, Kim. Like it could just be like what right. makes liberal elites happy. Is this yeah, woke enough? Can, yeah, because you can interpret ethics however you right. want, right? I mean, so it depends right. on who's in charge of the scoring system that gets to decide what is ethical, what isn't ethical, right. what is good social governance, what isn't good social governance. So uh, now, this system has been implemented for a while. It's been in use uh, at least, I mean, it was developed decades ago. It's been more prominently in use for at least 10 years, definitely in the early, you know, 2010, 2011, 2012 is when it really started to take hold. And it's become much more prominent now. Pretty much every investment fund firm, money mm-hmm. management firm uses these ESG scores. So well, well, that, that, And that's what I'd want to know. If Well, if they use them, they probably think they're valuable, right? It, 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 do in, investors... Uh, do investors, you know, make more of a return on their investment if they invest in companies? Do do companies that have higher or lower, whatever, better ESG scores make more money for the investors than other companies? I, 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 they maybe they would. They'd probably start ignoring them, or maybe I don't know. Maybe they make more money pretending to care about them because it makes woke customers or something happy. I don't know. It's more like putting lipstick on a pig. It's not mm-hmm. exactly, uh, you know, it's it's like, oh, this just makes you feel good as an investor. You want to invest in companies that are, quote unquote, socially conscious or responsible um, or environmentally friendly. And and they and so it's it's not really, you know, a lot of these companies aren't actually, I mean, Lockheed Martin, why do they have a better score than Tesla? Somebody explain right. that, you know, it, but it's more about they do little things to kind of boost their score slightly like Disney and it just makes investors feel better, but it's not necessary. So, yes, there's more money that flows in because if you are managing money, uh, you know, and, and your investors but, want to but invest that's what in. I, but that's what I'm asking. That's what I'm wondering. Do investors see it as valuable? Do they say, oh, this company has a better ESG rating, so we, we should be more we, – we should want to invest in this one because this is going to make us more money? Do well, they no, see I it do, that way is what I wonder. I don't, I don't think it's about – making more money because that company's going to be more profitable. It's more like the mm-hmm. investors, the people that are giving them the money, want to feel good about their investments. Right, and they are often political entities themselves. Right. So let's say it's a city. Mm-hmm. So politicians are the ones who are investing the pension fund for the city. Or if it's a teacher's right. union or a firefighter's union, you might have, you would have people who are saying, like, we should make sure that our investments are, I see. are ethical. And then so then yes. the companies and then the investment managers then come up with ways to say okay well these are 
the, no. right. the same way that you had a lot of climate activists in college co in colleges telling their endowments, we don't want you investing in oil companies. Right. right. And so then right. these, as a or we want you to be, what is it, lead certified or whatever that, uh, I remember that was a big deal. Right. And so then you have money managers who create products for yeah. that. It wouldn't be right. surprising that the money managers don't actually care yeah. and are creating like pretty much <laughs> arbitrary <laughs> stuff. Oh, oh, you want good investments? Oh, yeah, these yeah. are good. Mm -hmm. But I also think it, like, there's some, like, I, I think there's some fairness to saying, like, if you've had a ton of, like, settlements around harassment and racism in your workplace, that there might be some consumers who want to take that into account or some investors that want to take that into account when they're deciding whether right. not to invest. So I think, because from a kind of socialist perspective, it's like, look, you've already told socialists that you, they can't democratically control how investment is done in society. We, I have told like, them that. Right, you told, told them that. Them that and you tell time. them, yeah. look, but you're, you're free to make your own choices mm -hmm. about how investments are made. And then if they organize and start directing it, so well, not, not like that. Mm -hmm. So that, but I think Kim's right that she's flagged like a lot of flaws in how this is done, but I think the principle, if you're not going to allow democratic control of capital investment, then people still do have a right to organize around the idea of how you invest money right. in society. Sure, but, but they definitely but have a right. Yeah, we're just, well, I don't, right. I'm not putting yeah. words and, and we, out, and we, we have a right to say the, the way you're right. doing it is, is kind of silly. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, this is putting a score. It's almost like putting a scarlet letter on somebody who is bad, right? Because if your score is, if you have a bad score, then it's like you're getting a scarlet letter. So, I mean, we have to, yes, I understand the principle of it that, okay, I would like to know which companies are socially responsible and which ones I want to, you know, what, what, which ice cream do I want to buy? Do I want to buy Ben and Jerry's or do I want to buy, right. you know, some other company that maybe isn't, uh, doesn't share the same values as I do, right? We have that ability to make those choices as our, as a consumer, as an individual, of course. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, is that these ESG scores are not about the people organizing. This is about neoliberal elites organizing, and they decide these scores. And then they're well, telling the us, people, this, is, yeah. this is who is good and who is bad. Often it's people organizing, but then the people's organizing work is being co-opted and channeled by those neoliberal neo alerts, yeah. which is story of our lives. Story right. of our lives. All right, thank you, Kim. Tomorrow on Rising, journalist Manny Morota will be here to break down the latest on the Russia-Ukraine war. And Layla Dalton, the Starbucks union leader who was recently fired by the company, will be with us to discuss her experience and her efforts to unionize. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And be sure to check out our podcast. We've got podcasts wherever podcasts are available. So be sure to share and subscribe that as well. And also find us on TikTok. Um, I think we're everywhere now, right? We're, we're like TikTok, podcasts. Everywhere. Can't, can't avoid um, us. You cannot avoid us. You cannot escape. You could suspend us. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't try. Yeah. For now, we're everywhere until right. we get ourselves right. in trouble again. We'll try not to do that, and we'll see you all next time. Bye-bye.